Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Friday, April the 8th, 2022, and this show will be rebroadcast on Monday, April the 11th, 2022, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us. At koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 103rd post COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light Into Darkness with your host, Pedro Gatos. Tonight on Bringing Light Into Darkness, we present a scathing overview of the lawlessness around international law when it comes to big, powerful nations with an international law expert, Alfred de Zayas, who is one of the leading experts in the world on this subject. This is the interview I had with Alfred de Zayas, the attorney from Switzerland on Friday, April the 8th, 2022. Before we turn to the formal show content, I wanted to include a preliminary discussion that the esteemed attorney Alfred Desias and I had as a preface to our show tonight. Referring to his colleagues in the human rights field at the UN, he had this to say. Enjoy. In Germany, in the United States, in Canada, and uh, our assessment of what's going on from the legal standpoint and from the historical standpoint is the same. Mm -hmm. What the narrative that you're getting in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, in CNN, or for that matter, in the Neue Zürcher Zeitung, even here in Switzerland, the, uh, the press is homologated. Mm -hmm. And you're getting one point of view. The narrative mm -hmm. is always the same. We all see it in the Secretariat mm -hmm. of the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, and mm -hmm. also my colleagues, yeah. so many of my rapporteur, rapporteur friends, uh, assess the situation in exactly the same way. And notwithstanding, you don't know that. It right. is not being reported. Your work, I wanted to actually focus on your most recent April 7th article that you wrote. I thought it was very provocative. The show that I do is a weekly show, and we've covered a number of elements since 2014. So this is not a new subject. And I, I really appreciate your analysis from an international law perspective. And I wanted to ask you some questions along that format, referring particularly to your article in Counterpunch of, of April the 7th. With that said, we'll turn our attention to our show introduction. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. I am your host, Pedro Gatos. We are actually taping this show on Friday, April the 8th. It will replay on Monday, April the 11th, 2022. 
We are blessed to have with us as our guest tonight, Mr. Alfred Desias is a law professor at the Geneva School of Diplomacy. He has served for a long time as a UN independent expert on the international order of the world from 2012 to 2018. He's the author of a number of books. I wanted to focus on a particular article you wrote, Mr. Desias. The article dated April 7th, 2022. The title is No Right Arises from a Wrong and it was published in Counterpunch. One of the things I wanted to start off with in our discussion, because it has not gotten much airtime at all, there has been some precedents that have been set by interventions of the West, mainly led by the United States in Iraq in 2003, in Libya in 2011. Part of the justification has been this R2P responsibility to protect what we know is that in Iraq, the claims that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, that Saddam Hussein was behind 9-11, that Saddam Hussein was harboring al-Qaeda, all proved to be falsehoods. We know that in Libya, that there was the claim that Gaddafi, he was harming and threatening harm to his own people, and there's a, a pending humanitarian disaster. Yet no one reported the fact that Libya, at the time of the invasion, had the highest human development index in the whole continent of Africa. In other words, no one lived better as a civilian in the whole continent of Africa than in Libya. And we, so we know that those were lies. And so without getting into the specifics of the Russian claims that precipitated their invasion, we'll get into that later. Can you start off our discussion by highlighting under what type of international law or violation of international law have these aggressions, how do they fall within the, the legal framework of international law, specifically these ones that I just mentioned regarding Syria, Iraq, and Libya, first off? Well, the United Nations Charter, which is akin to a world constitution, has its purposes and principles laid out in Articles 1 and 2. And one of those inalterable principles of what we term in international law, use cogens, use cogens means peremptory international law, is the prohibition not only of the use of force, but of the threat of the use of force. It's obvious that the NATO aggressions in Yugoslavia in 1999, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Libya, in Syria, in Somalia, etc., are all grave violations of the United Nations Charter. And you mentioned this scam called R2P, Responsibility to Protect. This is something invented by the West in order to try to circumvent this prohibition of the use of force in order to be able to intervene in the internal affairs of states by claiming that the country is unable to protect the human rights of its citizens and therefore international military intervention is necessary. Now, if R2P meant anything, and it doesn't really, it would have to be used against Saudi Arabia that is committing genocide in Yemen. It would have to be used against Azerbaijan, who has committed war crimes and crimes against humanity against the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh and continues to threaten 
Nagorno-Karabakh would have to be used against Israel because of its apartheid policies against the Palestinians, because of its aggressions against all its neighbors, including Lebanon and Syria, because of the unauthorized use of force against Syria, throwing God knows how many missiles and drones to Damascus and elsewhere, All of these are grave violations of international law, which have been, shall we say, tolerated by the media. They are not in any way legitimized. Don't get the impression that because the United States and NATO violate international law, that that changes international law. As I explained in my article in Counterpunch, the general principle of law ex injuria, non auditur ius, means exactly that, that no right can arise out of a wrong. So by violating international law, you do not create new international law. What you have is a situation of impunity. You have a situation whereby the United Nations lacks the enforcement mechanism in order to punish the United States and NATO countries for all of its military interventions and for all of the war crimes and crimes against humanity committed, by the way, in our name. I'm an American citizen, and I resent the fact that my government has been committing all of these crimes and getting away with it. Mm -hmm. And that is something that the vast majority of Americans do not realize because the vast majority of Americans are still influenced by CNN and Fox and the New York Times and the Washington Post, et cetera, a homologated corporate media that disseminates fake news and flawed, skewed narratives and that suppresses information. Let me ask you this, and I want to remind our listeners that we're visiting with Mr. Alfred Desais from Switzerland as we speak, quite a time difference and appreciate your time. In your article, you also talk about another international law violation that I want our listeners to get your legal acumen focused on, which namely has to do with the imposition of unilateral coercive measures of sanctions. Currently, the United States in the West, particularly the United States, sanctions close to one-third of the population of the world's countries. And in my question, I also would like you to, to speak to the issue of how, as such a powerful economic entity that we are, that we can even, and we have been freezing the assets of countries and actually taking them from countries like Venezuela and other countries as well. And I just wanted to know, what is the legal basis of sanctioning nations? Is that Does that only come with the authority of the UN or is these types of independent unilateral sanctions that the United States announces on a regular basis, does that have the weight of international law behind it? Well, the only legal sanctions are sanctions imposed by the United Nations under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter. The UN General Assembly has condemned unilateral coercive measures repeatedly. The last time was Resolution 76-161 of December 2021. 
the Human Rights Council has also condemned unilateral coercive measures repeatedly. The last time in March 2021, Resolution 46, Part 5, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights has condemned unilateral coercive measures. The former High Commissioner for Human Rights, Navi Pillay, presented a report condemning unilateral coercive measures back in January 2012. The United Nations Subcommission on the Promotion and Protection of Human Rights presented a report of some 70 pages explaining why these sanctions are illegal and why they raise the necessity and the obligation of states to make reparation to those countries that have been negatively impacted by the sanctions. You have to remember that economic sanctions kill. Economic sanctions are comparable with a medieval siege of a town. They're comparable with the Nazi siege of Leningrad, which cost one million lives. My friend, Professor Jeffrey Sachs and Mark Weisbrot of the Center for um, Economic and Policy Research in Washington published a report 2019 in April laying out how in the specific case of uh, Venezuela, the American sanctions, and in particular the finance and financial blockade, are responsible for the deaths of some 40,000 people in the year 2018 alone. And these sanctions have been in place since 2015, and they have been made increasingly more severe Basically, the United States has done its level best to asphyxiate the economy of Venezuela, as it has done to try to asphyxiate the economy of Nicaragua and Cuba and Syria, etc. So, uh, Mr. Desaz, I mean, I know you're aware of it, but perhaps the most heinous sanctions was on the Saddam Hussein regime back in the 90s, before the invasion. Well, those were, uh, those were imposed by the Security Council. They were. Uh, to the omnibus uh, resolution of the Security Council 688 of 1991 were renewed and renewed and renewed. So this sanctions regime imposed by the United Nations lasted until 2003. Uh, my, my only point, though, is not whether they were quote unquote, internationally legal or not, but the fact that they resulted in over 500,000 deaths of children, children. alone, of children alone, that, that was the UNICEF estimate. Right. And you remember the infamous uh, interview with the late Secretary of State Maudlin Albright when she was asked whether, uh, was it worth it, uh, worth it to get regime change in Iraq? And she answered, yes. Right. It's absolutely breathtaking yeah. how a secretary of state could say that the death of 500,000 children because of these sanctions was a good thing. Let me ask oh. you this. In light of the immense influence that the United States has by its economic and military posturing, the influence also permeates, I think, into the UN itself, that there is a lot oh, very of... Very much so that... The UN has been in the service of the West. 
The UN essentially does what the United States, Canada, United Kingdom, France, mm. Australia, Japan want the UN to do. It's only now gradually that China is flexing its muscles in the United Nations and making clear that it is not going to continue playing the game of the United States, which is guilty of violating more international law than any country I can think of. And I would like to refer to President Jimmy Carter, whom I visited for a week at the Carter Center back in 2015. I spent quite a bit of time with him and discussed many issues with him. And I remember his saying that the United States is the most aggressive country in the history of the world. I mean, it is shocking how the United States, over its 200 years existence, has managed to nearly exterminate the First Nations of the continent, the Sioux and the Navajos and the Pequots and the Seminoles and the uh, Crees and Cherokees and Squamish, and uh, how we've managed to topple the kingdom of Hawaii, and then fraudulently annexing Hawaii, how we committed genocide in the Philippines, how we have interfered in the internal affairs of practically every country in uh, Latin America in total impunity. But the problem is that the mainstream media is complicit. The mainstream media is the echo chamber of the State Department and this echo chamber of the military industrial financial complex. That being the case, most of the American people is disinformed. Most of the American people is brainwashed into accepting a narrative that if you only scratch the surface, you realize that that narrative is just simply false. Well, let me ask you this then. We've talked about the aggressions that the United States has been involved in that were violations of international law in Libya and Iraq and those types of things. I've been following the claims of the Russian government, and they seem to have some plausibility. Although I'm not in favor of the invasion, the claim that the people of Donbass were being slaughtered to the tune of almost 14,000 deaths, civilians and military together before the invasion of February of this year, since the post-coup in 2014, a large portion of of those 14,000 were civilians. The emergence uh, following the coup of, of over a half dozen, we've documented this on other shows, of cabinet positions that were taken by neo-Nazi personnel, uh, including the national security highest offices, the horrific war crimes in Odessa that followed the coup itself, and and, and in Donbass, graves that were revealed where Ukraine armed forces were in control with some of these Azov and other far-right militia kind of infiltrations revealed execution-style deaths. In World War II, Russia, they lost 27 million people to to the Nazi Germany, and that was barely a generation ago. And then finally, the issues regarding their concern of their national security based on offensive missile sites in Hungary and Romania and the increasing NATO militarization into the Ukraine after this unrelenting NATO expansion eastward despite the 
promises it would not happen. I guess the point I'm trying to get to is where I don't necessarily agree with the invasion of Russia. I don't have an opinion on that at this point because I'm still trying to sort out uh, quite a bit of stuff. It seems like it is a false comparison to suggest that Russia is, is a violator just as the United States was a violator. When we invaded Iraq in 2003 and Libya in 2011 and Vietnam in the 60s and Syria, etc., etc. Because the United States did not have any legitimate national security interests. They did not have some of these other interests and such. So I, I know your position is that this Russian aggression is, is similar and that it's illegal under the, the UN Charter but can you explain a little bit about the actual dynamics and the dissimilarities that suggest that the Russian invasion, I guess my question is, at what point does a nation have the right to defend itself at a national security level by an offensive operation like this? That's clearly what the Russian government is suggesting was their motivation. And, and from your perspective, how would you address what I've just shared with you? Well, it's important to contextualize uh, what has happened on the 24th of February. And your listeners should understand that this war did not start on the 24th of February 2022. It actually started on the 22nd of February 2014 with the U.S. co-financed, supported, endorsed coup d'etat against the democratically elected president of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych. Now, there has been a successful information war conducted by the West, uh, which has more or less created a perception uh, that there was some legitimacy to this coup d'etat and that the new regime installed in Kiev is a democratic legitimate regime, which it is not. Now, the fact is that the Charter, Article 2, Paragraph 4, is very clear that the use of force is illegal unless it is approved by the Security Council pursuant to Chapter 7. The only exception is self-defense, Article 51 of the Charter. That means if you have been the victim of a military aggression, then you have the right to respond in kind within proportionality. And then the matter is taken up by the Security Council. Now, the concept championed by George W. Bush, the concept of preemptive self-defense does not exist in international law. It is as invalid in Iraq as it would be now in the context of the Ukraine. I think it was a major mistake to cite Talleyrand at the type of uh, the Napoleonic Wars. Talleyrand said about one of the decisions of Napoleon, c'est plus qu'un crime, c'est une bêtise. It is more than a crime. It is massive stupidity. So uh, in any event, Putin, I think, was ill-advised in deciding this invasion, which has not been going very well for him, by the way. As the case may be, if he had just maintained the pressure and insisted on international law, insisted on his right, Russia's right to have security, 
Russia's national security is as important as the national security of every other country. The NATO countries violated oral agreements that were made in 1989, 1990, 1991. The NATO would not expand eastwards. And the fact is that NATO has not only tried to incorporate Ukraine into NATO, they have flooded the country with armaments and with missiles and with tanks. And they have been training now since 2014, since the coup d'etat in Maidan 2014, they have been training the Ukrainian army, the Brits, the French, the Germans, and the Americans. And the country has been flooded with American intelligence services. Then there's also the issue of these 26 bio labs where some dangerous bio experiments have been conducted and financed, by the way, by your listeners, financed by us American taxpayers without being informed that that is something that we were financing. Uh, Mr. Desaius, before you continue, we need to take a pause for the cause. I just want to remind our listeners that this is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin, the premier community radio station of the nation. This is bringing light into darkness and we'll be back right after this. Don't touch that dial. 